You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have a very, very cool guest on the show. We have Dr. Rebecca Rogers, who is a techno-ecologist, specifically issues with drones, you know, but she's open to all the technology and hopefully all the ecologies. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rebecca. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. We haven't had too much talk about drones in the show. Drones are obviously cool. So Let's start with, who knows if it's an easy question, what is your job? Yeah, definitely a a varied one these days for me. So at the moment, I'm working as a lecturer, a vet lecturer, so that's vocational education training. So we're currently setting up a program to train people to be essentially work-ready drone pilots. But on the other side of it, I also do research. So that's where the the techno-ecology side of it comes in. So at the moment, I've got a more of a focus on research while we're setting up this program. So a lot of my research is around using technology to solve problems, ecological problems. So that could be anything from, like you've already said, using drones. For my PhD, it was looking at using weather radar to track water bird movement. My master's was GPS technology. So I've got a bit of a, a technology addiction, I think, that has led me down this road of just trying different technology to solve unique or novel or big data problems, I guess. You just mentioned many cool (laughs) things in a very short period of time. And obviously, you know, very pro-tech here. That's how we have a podcast is because of technology. And that is so cool. You just mentioned weather radar and birds, though. I know we're not here specifically to talk about that, but how does that? Yeah, I mean, I had the same question a few years ago when the idea was proposed to me for my PhD work. And I had no idea that this was a thing or that you could do it. But essentially, we looked at how you could do this in Australia. It's already done overseas and it has been for a while, but it's using, so the way that weather radar works, just like the one you'd see on a phone app in Australia, the bomb app or other ones overseas, you see the weather rate, the rain on the radar. And that same data, if you have kind of the raw data from a radar, unfiltered, everything is still there. Anything that's in the air can reflect a signal back to the radar. So essentially, theoretically, then if there's birds in the air, they could also reflect a signal back to the radar. So what we were interested in is water birds specifically, but it was looking at whether whether the weather radar could detect water birds up in Northern Territory. And if it could, did it match survey data that they already had? What could we find out from it? And we definitely could see them. It's, there's a lot of work to be done to get it to work really well, but it was, yeah, really interesting novel use, repurposing data for something it wasn't really meant for. There is a teeny tiny bit of me that's now concerned when I look at the weather radar, though, that if there happened to be like just a real big flock of birds, it could all get a bit confused. I mean, the, I'll preface by saying that weather radar, even though I did my PhD on this, is definitely not my uh, direct area of expertise, much like most of what I do, which we'll probably get into at some point. But essentially, the like BOM in Australia, the Bureau of Meteorology will filter out things that aren't rain. So your birds, your bats, smoke can be on the radar, things like that all have to be filtered out by them. Unfortunately for us, you can't kind of just back undo their algorithm and get the birds out of it. It's a bit more rough than that. So we had to do it separately. But yeah, generally it'll be filtered out. And I'm sure there's error associated with that from BOM's side, which you, when you look on the radar, you sometimes see things where you know there's not rain there or there is rain, but it's very light. And I think usually that would still show up, but there might be more 
clutter, as they call it, on the radar. And you especially see it really close to the radar. You get a lot of clutter going on from the ground or from insects and things around the radar. <laughs> okay. Clearly we need to find someone who knows about weather radar because it's it's something that occasionally niggles at me. Yeah. How it works. Anyhow, we're not – I won't quiz you on stuff that you're not here to talk about because that's not fair. You just mentioned, though, though, that you're setting up a program to train people to fly drones, uh, which is good. We don't like rogue people with drones. That's a bit terrifying sometimes. What kinds of stuff, like obviously you haven't done the program yet, but what kinds of stuff are you going to teach people and then what are they going to go out into the world and do? Yeah, so it's a, a vocational training course. So it's a Cert 3 level course through the the Australian VET framework. So it's very much about kind of your competency, I being able to do a job to fit industry standards, to do it appropriately. So for us, we'll be teaching kind of legislation, how to fly a drone, although really the actual flying of a drone is often a small part of being a drone pilot, but teaching them the laws, how to safely fly, and then of course, how to actually fly. And then part of the Cert 3 course, which is different to most standard just licensed courses that people would do, is that we'll also teach people a few different specific skills. So for us, for now at least, that'll involve teaching people how to conduct surveys and teaching people how to do building inspections. And there's a few other ones that eventually will run things like search and rescue. And I think there's one around retrieval. So sending, yeah, delivery and retrieval as well is another option. Are there jobs in that? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a vet program. So it means that there's like an industry body has said that they need people for these positions. So we're providing that for the industry, but there's also different jobs that you can go into with as a drone pilot. I mean, I do it as a researcher, I use drones, but then people use drones to do surveying of build sites. You can use drones to kind of fly over, let's say a, a dump or a build site and figure out how much of a material there is there, like work out the volume of it. You kind of automate a lot of those processes, fly over, it calculates it for you or software calculates it for you and you can work out whether you need more materials to fill a hole or if you've got enough materials and things like that. And then you can also use them in agriculture. There's spraying drones that will fly over and spray your crops for you or you can work out plant health from a drone. So there's just so many different industries now that can benefit from drones. I mean, there's gaming industry uses drones to get 3D models of things and put them into games as a recent one I've seen. And yeah, just so many different applications. In the end, it's just a camera up in the sky or different types of sensors up in the sky. So you can do lots of different things with them. The opportunities are endless. So what are you doing with them at the moment? So I am using drones primarily for research and from, as the name suggests, for ecological research mostly, although there's a few different things at the moment. So I'm supporting a few different projects. One's looking at feral pigs and monitoring or working out whether we can use feral pigs, uh, use drones, sorry, to monitor feral pigs. So putting a thermal camera on a drone, flying it over and seeing if we can detect them, if you can tell them apart from the environment well up in the territory, if you can tell a drone uh, from the drone, if you can tell a, a pig from a termite mound, for example, because they're often quite warm and they show up on the imagery, making sure you can tell them apart. There's another project looking at heat mitigation in the Darwin city. So looking at whether we can use drones to work out where there's hot spots of environment or where plant, where the planting has been successful in cooling down the cities. A lot of complicated regulations with flying drones in the CBD, but an interesting new project. And then I'm associated with, but not directly on a project around health delivery. So using drones to deliver healthcare to regional and remote areas. 
And then we've previously done some projects on wallabies actually in WA, and that was around endangered species. And can we, again, with thermal, detect endangered wallaby species? So lots of different things. (laughs) Yes, I'm trying to work out what the thread is between them all. (laughs) Yeah, there's not a lot of thread between the things I do often. I, I think I just really like learning new things and using technology. So the, it, I find it hard sometimes to find the knob, the thread between what I do and what I've done. But I mean, a lot of the time it's with the exception of the healthcare delivery one, which is I'm not as involved in. The rest of them are really around using, can we use drones to solve some sort of environmental or ecological problem, whether it's finding animals, whether it's counting them, or in the case of the city one, it's around the climate and the environment. If I can ask, What kind of drones are we talking about? Oh, yep. So there's quite a few different types of drones that we're using. So most of my work is on kind of smaller drones. So the ones that you typically think of. So a lot of them are the the DJI drones, which is one of the biggest, well, the biggest company that makes drones. So they're all below seven kilos, which is kind of the, the base license that you can get for drones in Australia. So they're either below two kilos or below seven kilos. Most of them are multi-rotor drones, although the stuff for WA a little bit, the wallabies, and for the pigs, we're also using fixed wings. So it looks more like a traditional plane, although it's small and made out of polystyrene, so not not quite the same. And then the healthcare stuff, which again, I'm only kind of associated with through the PhD student, is big, quite big drones, below, but still below 25 kilos, I think, but I wouldn't know for sure on that one, but large fixed wing vertical takeoff drones. So they take off like a multi-rotor and then fly like a fixed wing so that you can take off from more small areas, which you can't really do with the traditional fixed wing. Like all the cool sci-fis, right? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Just living in a sci-fi. Well, because that was going to be my thing, right? Is it most of those small drones, like they've got a fairly Mm. short battery life that like it's a lovely thought that they could go somewhere remote, but they wouldn't come back because the battery would die halfway there. Yeah, I mean, most of the little drones, they claim a time limit that they can go for and it's something like 30 minutes and really it's 15 or 20 if we're lucky, especially with the cameras we're putting on them and the heat in the territory. So there must be drones that are commercially available that have a bigger radius, battery life? Yeah, battery life would be a big part of it usually. And communications is the other big issue is being able to communicate with your drone from a long distance away. Yeah, a lot of those, there are ones that are kind of, I guess, off the shelf or already being used around the place. But a lot of them, particularly for these really large distances we're talking about in the territory, they have to be kind of custom built for the program. And that's a big part of what that program is, is working out what drone is actually fit for purpose for flying hundreds of Ks potentially across the Northern Territory and storms and birds and everything. It's a pretty complex issue. And I hadn't even thought about weather. Of course. Yes. Gust of wind. Boom. It's all gone. Now, I happened to see a video of you or that you shared launching a fixed wing. Now, I suspect that that is not how the average listener sitting up the back might be assuming that a fixed wing drone is launched. Are you able to verbally describe how that works? Yeah, it's it's always a bit of a shock to people, I think, when we talk about the the launching of the fixed wing, especially that we use, especially since it's got a very expensive camera on it often, $10,000, $20,000 camera. And we kind of joke that you got, you're going out to the field to throw some drones because that's essentially what you do is you kind of go out to the field, you've got a fixed wing drone, you're holding on to the wings quite close to the middle of it, and you have to give it a few shakes to get it to start. 
and then you have to hold it quite close to your stomach, particularly if you're short like me. You have to hold it pretty close to your stomach and then essentially just throw it. And it really is, you don't want to put too much weight behind it. It kind of does its thing on its own most of the time. But yeah, you just throw it. And I've seen other versions of the throw that we do or that we've been taught to do where it's more like a a, a slingshot kind of throw, I guess, or like a boomerang throw where you hold it to your side and fling it out. Either way, it's probably one of the most nerve-wracking parts of my drone flights is throwing the drone, especially, again, being short. I'm a lot closer to the ground, and so there's a lot less room for error, particularly if there's not a lot of wind. And you do have sometimes nosedive when it isn't a lot of wind, always in a nice soft field, and it's all okay, but it is an interesting part of the job for sure. Which then raises the next question, how do they land? It's similar, very, yeah, very similar situation. It's essentially a nosedive, which is again why when it does do a bit of a body nosedive when you throw it, it's not a big drama because the way that the drone lands is it comes in at an, on, a, on an angle into the wind. So that kind of buffers it a little bit and it essentially just belly lands and slides across the ground. When it gets close to the ground, it'll kind of reverse its propeller. So it slows itself down. And then theoretically, if the wind is good and all of that, it should land pretty gently in the ground. Lower winds, if you, it might come in a little bit harder, but it's yeah, always pretty, pretty soft landing and pretty accurate landing too, which is nice. Which is amazing. I love this cutting edge technology stuff. It's just <laughs> exciting, slightly stressful sometimes, but we, we had a lot of, we always have a lot of issues to troubleshoot, but it's part of it. Sounds like it's a bit of an art as well, this uh, yeah. drone flinging. <laughs> so can you detect feral pigs with a thermal camera? Yes, you can definitely detect them. How well you can tell them apart from things kind of depends on your imagery, how high you fly, things like that, your camera. We're trying to look at detection detection at nighttime and daytime. So daytime you have another image. So the, the camera that we're using has both a thermal camera and just like a standard RGB camera like your normal point and shoot camera you'd have at home. So you can compare the two images that were taken at the same time. So you can go, we've got an image that looks like it's a thermal picture of a pig. Let's look at the actual picture and see what it looks like. Whereas at night, you don't have that. You're, you've got a black image for your other photo. So it's deciding, can we actually be confident that that image is a pig or not? And in the case of the study that, that you saw the images from or the video from, it's an honor student. And for her work, she's got pigs in a field contained they've got gps collars on as well so we know exactly where they were while it was flying around so she can actually compare things and go we know there's 11 in the field say how many did i count what what was my probability of detection and then look at all the variables around tree cover all of that kind of stuff to see why she might have missed some why she didn't miss ones all that that kind of stuff which one turned out to be a termite yeah, mound? Yeah, termite mound. Wallabies that have jumped into the field because they definitely do that too. Yeah, lots of different things that could be kind of messing up that imagery. The research that you're doing in the NT, is that then able to be applied somewhere else like Victoria? Just because like, obviously there's a, there's a lot of environmental differences. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, all of it can be kind of applied in different locations. There'll be differences like the termite mounds there. It might not be as big of an issue. That wouldn't be as hot. So your climate kind of stuff obviously is going to be different. But I guess the, the main thing with a project like that is it's already known that you can detect pigs with thermal imagery. That's kind of not something new. It's no different to the fact that you can de detect us with a thermal camera. So it's more about the specifics of 
in the the tropical climate, the NT, but it could be the tropics in general, I suppose, what's the differences and what are the ways that we can apply it to this context? And then there's other studies like the one in WA with the wallabies, which is a similar kind of thing. It's theoretically we know we can detect them, but how well can we detect them in this environment? And in that case, it's an endangered species, so it is a lot more complicated than looking for a bunch of feral pigs that there's too many of them is the problem. So detecting small numbers versus large numbers, they're all just kind of different applications of the same technology. But how do you tell the the special wallaby from your average wallaby? Like they're just a blob. Yeah, I mean, that's part of that project is looking at can you actually tell them apart in that system? It was rock wallabies, so there's not there was definitely other wallabies. The Euros were there as well. They were a lot bigger, so you can kind of look at size and shape and tell a little bit. Again, if you have that the RGB image or the normal camera image next to it, you can zoom in and look for different colors of them. Yeah, they have a kind of a marking on their back that we were looking for. Yeah, lots of little things. It is pretty complicated though, and it's it's new, so we don't know completely yet. That was kind of a first trial. We were testing two different drones and seeing which one would be better, which is more practical. Uh, in that case, it was the fixed wing and a multi-rotor. So we were looking at, is it even practical to try to throw a fixed wing drone in on top of a plateau with trees around? Not really. There's not really a lot of spaces that you can do that. You might find one location, but can you actually move to another location and still launch that drone? So yeah, a lot of it was really looking at the actual technology itself and what is best and then getting into actually how well we can detect them would be the next step. And presumably the tech will be changing and improving mm. and like the cameras will change and improve, right? Yeah, I mean, that's part of the hard thing, I suppose. Good, good and bad thing is what I enjoy about it. But with a job like this, is it's all about novel technology. So it's always changing. You always have to be keeping up. It makes it something really interesting to be in, but you, you're always going to be kind of on the back foot really because it's you got you don't necessarily even know what is out there because we're repurposing stuff a lot of the time like the weather radar is a good example of that i wouldn't have even known this existed so there was no way i could be an expert in weather radar but if i didn't do it then who's going to do it there was only one other person and when i started there were none in australia that were doing that so yeah i'm not an expert in it and i don't really have an intention to be or the ability to be unless that's all I focus on. But you have to try new things and test new things and be prepared to kind of fail a lot, I guess, as well, to be able to do something like this. Wouldn't make it a little bit more challenging with publications, which take a long time. You'd be I can just imagine you'd be like just about to release a publication and then the new camera would come out and you'd be like, okay. I mean, that essentially <laughs> happened with the weather radar stuff. I At the start of my PhD, I wrote a review on essentially a review on the fact that there was nothing to review was what it was and just as I was it had been accepted was going to be published and then another paper came out and I was like well okay there's one we'll just (laughs) that'll come up eventually that there's another one but at the time there wasn't anything so you are you're kind of fighting the clock but I mean to me it's about collaborating with other people that if there's other people in the field if you collaborate with them then you know what is happening and you can work around that rather than trying to I guess beat someone to the punch there's no need to try to beat beat someone to the punch if you can just work together and in most things I've found people to be pretty open to collaborating or working together that that person was an example I actually knew her from another from a workshop I'd been to so I I kind of knew it was coming up I just didn't expect it as soon as it was so yeah I already knew about it because we had talked about things 
It sort of sounds like there could be a lot going on, but what does an average day look like for you? At the moment, an average day is probably mostly working with students on their programs or their projects rather. So, I mean, like I mentioned before, drone flying is often a very small part of being a drone pilot. So there's a lot of doing paperwork. You have to do pre-flight paperwork if you want to go out or help supporting students to do their pre-flight paperwork. Then once you get out, we'll organize equipment and everything, make sure you haven't forgotten a cable or that the cables aren't broken, which happens a lot. Batteries are charged. Batteries are charged, (laughs) all of that. And then getting out to the field, you have checklists you have to go through before you can take off, checking the radio, making sure there's no planes in the air or anything like that, helicopters around. Then you launch, collect your data, come back through and land again. Then you have your post-flight paperwork and you have to go recharge your batteries or put them on kind of a storage charge and then eventually get to actually going through the data. And at the moment, I'm not really going through a whole lot of data because I'm mostly supporting other people, but supporting students with their data analysis or their questions around their data. And then on the the course side of things, we're in that process of setting it up. So we have to go through all of our course material and modify it and finalize it before we can send it off to CASA, the safety regulator. And they have to approve it all. So a lot of paperwork <laughs> and a lot of supporting people and learning things. So that's always good still. Have to keep up to date, as you're saying. There's always new things. So doing a lot of reading and researching. And we're we're planning to do things in schools for the VET program. So we're trialing out lots of stuff for that and playing around with new new technology and toys, I guess, as well, which is kind of fun. I think the kids might like you. <laughs> I think they might like the toys that we bring, especially. Yeah, Yeah, we were actually, we've just been doing some things to kind of, I guess, publicize what we're up to and get people interested and running drone simulators at open days and things for schools. And yeah, everyone loves it. Not surprisingly, everyone's pretty keen to play a video game, essentially, in in the name of doing STEM work and STEM careers. Even the teachers were getting in on it. Feel free to skip this one, but do you ever get like resistance from people associating drones with less nice surveillance kind of stuff? Probably not so much on the surveillance side. People, There's plenty of people who think drones are a bit of a nuisance and noise and things, and you always get people asking questions about rules and what they can and can't do. I haven't had a lot actually surprisingly on the surveillance side of things though which you'd expect more people and maybe they still are and they're just not the people that we are kind of meeting with a lot of the time. But yeah, a lot of it's more around rules and regulations and people telling me things that they were doing and kind of holding my tongue knowing that maybe it wasn't the right one and trying to educate people on what the rules are without being too pushy with it, I suppose. Or yeah, it's a constant one is the rules. People just don't know really what the rules are around drones and they're quite complicated to follow a lot of the time. Although CASA's done a great job with simplifying rules and making it more open and clear to people. But yeah, you still get mostly a lot of that trying to work out what they're allowed to do with their drone. Yep. Okay. I can see this. There, there was a Christmas a couple of years back where it felt like everyone got a drone. Yeah. There was plenty of bad behavior. <laughs> it's, a very, it's a lot easier to buy a drone than it Maybe should be. Yeah, yeah, it's very easy. And CASA is getting pretty good at making sure a lot of drone people who are selling drones put out information with them now, which is good. And it definitely wasn't the case a few years ago. So it's improving and people are learning what the rules are, whether they're following them or not still is a different story. But luckily, there haven't been anything, any two major incidents that I know about. So it could be worse. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no, yeah. Okay, that's 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 good. People are still pretty open. How have you got to this position? Like, what was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? Not to make any assumptions about your age, but I'm guessing drones weren't really around. Like, what was the plan versus what? actually happened I mean when I was younger when before like kind of pre-high school and even into high school I had always wanted to be a vet so I think it was just animals I was interested in animals so I wanted to be a vet because that's what I had heard of I mean I had heard uh, the other option was wanting to be a zookeeper and I quickly decided I wanted to do something that was kind of I suppose in the higher education realm which can be for zookeeping but more yeah, I, I guess I decided I wanted to do vet from pretty young age and up until about year 11 or I guess it's um, year 10 here because I'm from New Zealand. But year, up until year 11, I wanted to be a vet. And then I was, ironically, I was doing physics because I had to for a vet and I hated it, which is kind of ironic given that I fly drones now for a living. But partly I had a physics teacher who wasn't necessarily the best or most motivating of teachers. And so I didn't enjoy it. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And I guess at the same time, I kind of started to realize that I didn't really want to do the medical side of things. And so vet didn't really make sense anymore. And on the flip side of the physics teacher, I had an incredible biology teacher who I was just lucky enough. He was straight out of uni. I managed to have him for all of my kind of high school years. And he was just very, very motivating, very engaging. And I learned about ecology, I guess, from that came up in year 11. It must have been around year 11. And I really enjoyed it. And I was like, oh, I can study animals and animal behavior and I don't have to do be a vet and do medical things that I'm not really that interested in. So I started then on the ecology side of things. And I went through uni, did ecology at Auckland Uni for undergrad. And then postgrad, I did a biosecurity and conservation was my master's program. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of, there was a few options for ecology, but that was one of the main ones that carried on that kind of ecology theme. And really enjoyed that, loved doing ecology, and then started the project. We had a, a lecturer who did movement ecology, and I just, I think, I think partly it was the technology side of things that movement ecology often comes with technology. So, studying animal movement, you're often using things like GPS devices or tags and all of that kind of technology. And so, I kind of caught on to that one and went down the movement ecology path. And I guess. It all, in hindsight, when I was younger, I should have, I just didn't know that this field or the technology and animal stuff could kind of go together. But I had a, an ICT teacher for a mum and a scientist for a dad. So really, I, it was kind of written in there that it was the hybrid <laughs> of the two of them. So yeah, I guess it kind of made sense anyway there. And in school, I was drama and science were my two major subjects, which was a bit of a weird combo, but it kind of worked with the, kind of works now with the science communication side of being a, a lecturer or a yeah, teaching at a university while still being able to do research. So a bit of a weird mix of things, but yeah, I did. Yeah, had a lot of technology that I worked with at school, and I was always that person who, when the TV broke or something, I was the one that people said to go up and fix it because I had always played around with technology with my mum after school or, or yeah, at home everything. So it was kind of written there. Just didn't realize it because, like you said, it didn't really exist then. Did you have the privilege of getting like a old? telephone or printer or something and getting to take it apart yeah I guess I was never necessarily into kind of taking things apart and putting them together I've often thought I guess since in hindsight should I have done engineering but I don't think that it would have been the right field for me either way and my, my husband's an engineer so I kind of know a bit about what he does and his computer systems so that kind of makes sense with what I do and knowing what 
what it would have been that I did if I went through that pathway. But really, it's the application of things that I'm interested in. So I'm quite good at problem solving technology, which really helps in my job and is a unique skill I have learned along the way that not a lot of people actually have. But by yeah, so the problem solving technology and using technology, I'm really interested in, but really more applying it to things, using it for something interesting or exciting is really what has led me to the drones or to any of the technology and ecology stuff I do. So we got up to movement ecology, but you're still in New Zealand. You're currently not in New Zealand. Uh, you're true, quite, I have missed a gap there. Quite I? not in New Zealand. <laughs> uh, you don't, I don't, I've never thought about people moving from New Zealand to the Northern Territory. They all seem to end up in Brisbane. So let's fill in the gap. Yep. So that was one of those kind of just happened to me kind of things. I have to get asked what exactly that or how did I end up in Darwin studying water birds, magpie geese on radar and really, yeah, it just kind of happened. So my master's supervisor who I did, I was studying black swans with GPS devices in Auckland and he knew my, what, who became my, my supervisor for my PhD who is up here in Darwin. He knew him and they were looking at using a similar device or the same device I had been trialing for my study. And he essentially at the end of my PhD sent us both an email and was like, you two should talk about PhDs. <laughs> and we did. And so I ended up in Darwin looking at the weather radar and the geese. And the weather radar originally was only going to be a small part of the project. It was kind of, oh, and we could try this. And then trying it turned out to be a lot more complicated than we all expected it to be. And I think I just have a a thing for attaching myself to something that's kind of complicated with technology and decided I'm going to solve it and figure it out. And so that became pretty much my whole PhD. And then the drones, obviously that's separate to it again. So mm. it was just at the beginning of the PhD, we talked about using drones to kind of validate some of my data, fly a drone over some magpie geese in a wetland and count them with the drone, compare it to the weather radar data. And we never actually got around to doing that just because I had spent so much time working out the radar stuff. But I got my license anyway because that was the plan. And so I ended up doing a lot of jobs on the side for my supervisor, going out doing drone flights and helping him with things for his research. And then at the end of it, got a job doing that with him as well. And and now you're going to be teaching other people. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of supportive people along the way that just kind of said, you should do this or try that. Or how about you come and try this? And so I did. And <laughs> now I'm here. I love it. That, yeah, no, I can see how that may not have been the original plan. No, definitely not. And obviously, like, even just thinking about it now, like working out what's going to happen in five years, like the technology is going to be totally different yet again. So. Mm. Yeah, no idea. And I, I don't even expect to necessarily be doing drone things in five years time. I don't, I don't really know. I'm not really attached to any particular technology as much as I'm not attached to studying water birds. Definitely not. <laughs> I'm not, I don't consider myself even an ornithologist, even though that's all I've studied for my master's and my PhD. So it's, yeah, I'm not sure what will happen in five years. No idea. We'll have to watch this space with keen interest. <laughs> have you got any advice that you would give either to young people or to young Rebecca. Yeah I, think, yeah, I think it's kind of a, a tricky one. I had to think about it beforehand as well because a lot of that kind of my career progression, I suppose, is a bit of a serendipity or unexpected things. But I guess that's part of it then is just taking up opportunities if they're put in front of you. And if they're not, then seeking them out, I think, is important as well. I think some of my, even my PhD work, my Sec uh, secondary supervisor, my co-supervisor for my PhD was a guy from the US 
who I sent an email to him asking if I could use some software that he had talked about and if that if he could share it with me. That was all I was asking really. And he said, yep, I can share it with you. It's a little bit complicated though to work with, but if you can come to the US, I can teach how to use it for a week. And I was like, okay. Went to my supervisor and asked him if that was okay. And he was pretty much like, I can't really teach you this. So yep, let's do it. And if it wasn't for that, I, I don't think I would have been able to even finish off the PhD focusing on the radar. So I think, yeah, taking up opportunities when they're put there, but seeking them out if they're not, if that's something that you want. And then I think for me, a big part of why I'm in the jobs that I am comes down to attitude. And a lot of that, I it's taken me a while, I think, to, I don't know if it's realize or just accept and agree with myself that that is the truth, is that I am particularly because it's novel technology and novel uses, I have said I can't be the expert in what I'm doing. I, and I don't really want to be anyway. The ex- expertise for me is being an expert in essentially troubleshooting technology and being creative with the way that we apply it to things and how we could change things and use it and how we can actually, and doing research itself. But having the right attitudes for the people who actually want to work with you and that you can troubleshoot things and you don't get angry about it or you don't, you lose that kind of positive attitude. I think that's a big part to actually getting the jobs. Like you can do the job, but whether you're going to get the jobs is a big part of that can be attitude. That is an absolutely fantastic piece of advice. (laughs) Yeah. It's taken me a long time, I think, to accept that about myself, that I, a lot of the jobs that I've got have come down to that. And, and I guess also the trying new things comes into that. Not being scared to try new things has meant that I have often it's a fine balance between trying lots of new things and actually getting things done, but it's made a difference to me. I mean, the drones is an example of that, that if I, it's easy enough to say, oh, you're doing a PhD, drones isn't part of your PhD anymore. Maybe you shouldn't do that. You need to focus on this thing. But if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have the job that I'm doing today. And I don't think I would find a job in specifically studying weather radar and birds in Australia since it's so new and so small. And I didn't necessarily want that anyway. So if I hadn't done these things on the side and not got caught up on the fact that, yeah, it's, it's going to make my PhD take longer. And that's actually okay because I'm kind of going to become a more well-rounded researcher and I'm going to be better for it at the end of the day and do be able to make more of a difference as well. And part of like being willing to try new stuff is being willing to be like quite not good at it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And that's something like a lot of people are just terrified of new stuff, like not just because it's new, but because they just don't want to, they like, have to go through not being good at something. And the more you can be comfortable with sucking at things. like Oh yeah. And it's really hard, particularly if you're in academia to admit that you don't know what you're doing and you're just trying something and it might not work. And I mean, it's the same with troubleshooting is half of my job is trying to figure out how to get a drone to work when it's not working or trying to get something that we haven't used before working. And a lot of that comes down to the difference between like people often say, oh, I'm so good at troubleshooting technology. I'm so good at figuring out how to get things to work. But the difference between me and a lot of other people is I'm not scared to press buttons that I don't know exactly what they do. (laughs) To be honest, like I obviously growing up with an ICT teacher for a mom and having a programmer for a husband, it's measured risk like I know certain things aren't going to destroy the drone or aren't going to destroy a computer but it's still being willing to go you know what we'll just try some things <laughs> we'll play around and being methodical about it going back to the beginning putting aside okay maybe I did something wrong maybe I plugged it in wrong maybe I did this wrong so let's unplug everything start from the very beginning one by one test each thing 
because a lot of people just are like, oh, I definitely did it right. <laughs> and when you watch them do it, they definitely didn't do it right. And it's like, it's okay. Who cares if you did it wrong? Just redo it and try it again. And it's, yeah, same with teaching, teaching things like GIS, G- science and uh, spatial science. It's the same thing as that people are using programs that it can be really complicated. And I think something my mum, because I sat in a lot of her lessons, even though she didn't teach me ICT, one of the things that she always used to say is that the computer only does what it's told. And so if you've done something, I mean, now that I have a programmer for a husband, he'll turn around and say, unless a programmer messed up, but generally speaking, (laughs) the computer only does what it's told. So you've probably clicked something wrong along the way. So just start again, take a breath, try again, and you'll probably get it going. And most of the time, touch wood, I can at least get some data out of every trip that we do. There's very rare occasions that I don't. And it's just because, yeah, it's doing that, making sure that you go back and try things. And yeah, not spend the entire time beating yourself up because you plugged in something wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Um. Or you forgot a cable because I definitely have done that before. (laughs) I think most of us at some point will have forgotten a cable probably. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Are there any particular myths, whether it's about drones or research or tech, that you would like to take this opportunity to do a bit of myth busting of? Hmm. I guess that what I was saying before could be part of it is that, I mean, you don't have to be the best. I think with technology, often people have, are either, they think they're, they're either good at it or they're not. And particularly if you didn't grow up with computers or like, and I, I grew up pretty young with computers. So I know that in a way I, I speak the language of computers and that's kind of the way I've always thought about it. It's, it's kind of a different language and you, but I don't think it's that you either know it or you don't. You can learn to do technology and most people now will grow up with technology anyway but whether you're growing up with technology in a sense that you're actually problem solving things or you're just a user of technology are two very different things so it's one thing to go okay something broke I can't figure it out and a different thing to actually go something broke I can try and work this out and even if you don't work it out you've at least learned something in the process of trying to work it out So people, I think, think that they just aren't good at technology. They can't figure it out, particularly if you're older, but even if you're not, that you can go and work it out. There's great ways to search for things online. Half of my job is the fact that I am essentially, I feel like an expert Googler in research and in technology. I'm just really good at Googling things. So if you can get really good at actually essentially researching, but Googling things, you will be able to solve a lot more of the technology problems than you think that you can. But you do have to build up that language. So that's one of the hardest parts, I think, for people who aren't super literate with technology, essentially, is that the difference between me trying to work something out and my husband, for example, is he has the language even better than I do because he did computer systems engineering. So when I'm trying to figure out something where with like coding, say, for research, I can work out, even though I'm more experienced with the program languaging, the programming language that we use for stats, he can work things out quicker than me anyway because he has that background knowledge of programming in general. It was a long-winded way of saying that the the myth to me is that you are good or bad at technology, that you either have it or you don't. I just don't think that's true. I think it's a learnt skill that it's a lot harder to learn it later, just like any language. But yeah, you can. You can learn it. You can find the answers. You just have to be determined, maybe a little bit stubborn at times. And um yeah, and have a, have the right attitude to not give up on things. Yep, be willing to turn it all off and on again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the classic turn it off and on again. 
true actually a lot of the time. Most of the time I'm finding. Yeah, yeah, most of the time. Well, a lot of the time it's not even about actually turning it off and on again, but it's a, a like a proxy for start over step by step. Yeah. <laughs> See what you did. Yeah. Is there anything else we haven't spoken about that you'd like to share? Um, I'll see if I, uh, am I writing down your, your questions? <laughs> I do skip some of them sometimes. Yeah, no, that's right. No, I think that was most of what I was thinking about really from your questions. Fantastic. In that case, we will go to a shout out. So have you got a virtual high five for someone or someone that you think is doing an awesome job and just deserves a bit of recognition? Oh, such a, a hard question. So many people probably. I think because I've just completed my PhD this year, <laughs> I'm going to have to say that I think that people who deserve a shout out right now, are particularly up here in Darwin, but everywhere, people who are doing or have just completed PhDs at the moment. I think it's been a really, really challenging time for people to be doing something like a PhD that involves a lot of determination, a lot of perseverance really to get through and to do it in the middle of COVID and everything. A lot of people separated from families and things. I think it's a huge achievement even just to be still doing it really, that it's really hard to not give up on something like that. And I am just really proud of all the people who are still doing it and are still going through that because I think it's really important. And I think it's easy to think that what you're doing for your research project doesn't matter, but creating new knowledge and getting the skills to be able to create new knowledge and, and essentially work things out and problem solve and all those things I've been saying that I have learned to be good at is really important. So yeah, I think it's just a, a shout out to all of them <laughs> who are doing that. Yeah, because it has been, it's always hard, tough to do a PhD and then yes, well, it's <laughs> it made it tougher, hard. which is amazing. Yeah, so high fives to all the PhD students. Yes. Because, and high five to you. Congratulations <laughs> on you. getting your doctorate. That's awesome. I also want to give a little shout out to your dog, who, <laughs> uh, for those of you who aren't aware, has been under the desk most of the time and has been pretty well behaved for a Doing dog. Doing some good scratches to keep her behaved. A little bit cheeky, but we got there. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Rebecca. This has been so awesome. You're doing really cool work and looking forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee payment. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend. Bye.